approaching our final destination, Itchy and Scratchy Land. The amusement park of the future where nothing can possibly go wrong. Uh, possibly go wrong. <laughs> that's the first thing that's ever gone wrong. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film. Or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, well, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week we pick one that one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the gunslinger to my chief supervisor, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing pretty well. This is our, our first uh, recording sesh since the new year, so I'm mm-hmm. very excited happy new about year. another yeah. happy new year. I'm excited for just another year of diving into these uh, movies parodied on The Simpsons. Well, and to that end, this week, we watched Michael Crichton's Westworld from 1973. You might remember it from such Simpson episodes as Season 5's The Boy Who Knew Too Much and Season 6's Itchy and Scratchy Land, which I have to say is probably, I've said this a couple times on the show, (laughs) but like probably a top five, certainly a top ten favorite episode for me. Yeah. Oh, no, it's an amazing episode. And I think like one of the interesting commonalities about the only two episodes where this is uh, parodied is that they were both under showrunner David Merkin, yes. who on the commentary points out that he loves this movie. Um, oh, okay. So, Interesting. Yeah. He may have been the influence that like brought this movie into The Simpsons. Right, right. Well, that would make a lot of sense. So, well, I guess that sort of emphasizes that tonight we're going to be talking about Itchy and Scratchy Land, Season 6, Episode 4, original air date, October 2nd, 1994, which means this episode is, believe it or not, 30 years old, which is kind of kind of crazy to put into perspective. But, uh, you know, I guess when the show has been on as long as it has, that makes a lot of sense. Written by the great John Schwartzwalder and directed by Wes Archer, who, if memory serves from when I used to watch the DVDs with all the commentaries, he's directed a number of my favorite episodes. So I think he's a pretty talented uh, guy. Now, before we get into this, though, Nate, we haven't ever really like dug too deep into Itchy and Scratchy on our show. Yeah. How do you feel about the Itchy and Scratchy like series? Like I don't even really know how to describe right. it, but the the show cinematic the universe. Show, yeah, the <laughs> the Itchy and Scratchy cinematic universe. I like that. Yeah. What are your thoughts and feelings? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Weirdly, I think I appreciate it more now than yeah. when I was younger, which is maybe surprising because it's kind of the most obviously slapsticky, funny sort of thing. But I think like watching The Simpsons, it wasn't the reason I watched The Simpsons. You know what I mean? And so I kind of was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's almost like filler. Sometimes there's some funny gags, sometimes not. But now that I'm older, I think I get more what it's trying to do. It's a parody of like Tom and Jerry, right? Or or even like The Roadrunner and and Wiley Coyote. It's that kind of formula. And but it's just with the violence cranked up to 11. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Where it's actually almost like showing the consequences of the violence in those <laughs> same cartoons that are incredibly violent often, yeah. but like playing up the gore a little bit to kind of make a point. And so there's that part of it, which I, I kind of appreciate more now, like wh- what it's playing off of the cartoons that I watched when I was a kid on, that were reruns at that point. And then the other thing that I love about it is the writers and the animators use it as a way to talk about their own work. 
and right. the in, and the industry as a whole, kind of in the same way that they use Krusty the Clown to talk about show business and that kind of stuff too. Right. There's like itchy and scratchy and Marge, right? Or they're they're sort of digging more into how the cartoon gets made and stuff like that. And there's even this episode. So, like one of the interesting things about the origin of this episode is that it was a response to censorship. Right. <laughs> Basically, the writers were getting really worked up about you know, the sort of political conversation that was going on at the time in 94 and the way that Fox was also responding to it, where they were sort of kowtowing and saying, oh, we need to tone it down. They basically said to them, like, you need to stop using itchy and scratchy so much and it can't be as extreme as it used to be. And so they wanted to actually, (laughs) of course, in classic Simpsons fashion, uh, turn up the dial on that and see how far we could push it. And so they decided to do an entire episode about Itchy and Scratchy where they go to this theme park with the explicit reason that it's like (laughs) you can immerse yourself in violence, basically. Yeah. That's what I appreciate about it, I guess, is the way that they use it to tell other stories throughout the cartoon. But what about you? What are your thoughts on Itchy and Scratchy? Yeah, no, I mean, again, much like you, when I was a kid, I probably just saw it as like, oh, it's this goofy, slapsticky, like hyper-violent version of Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry or these various other cartoons that existed at the time. But as I got older, then I started to, like you say, I appreciate that it was actually like it was really at the end of the day, like it's arguably some of the like most satirical stuff on the show because it's really (laughs) playing up this idea of cartoon violence. And it's also often used as a way to poke fun at Walt Disney and the Disney Corporation, which, of course, is now all the more ironic because they're now owned by Disney. Um, Right. And I think part of it, too, is that this also was a great way for them to just randomly throw in a movie parody that they wanted to do that otherwise wouldn't make sense. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about The Critic and how Al Jean and Mike Reese basically said, like, we loved writing movie parodies on The Simpsons, so we thought, how do we come up with a show where that's just what we can do 24-7? And I love that show as a result. But yeah, sure. a lot of these movie parodies and some of our favorites, I, I when we were in high school, we used to always <laughs> reference that scene in Pulp Fiction where he dances <laughs> to Stuck in the Middle with You and cuts off his ear, which of course is parodied on The Simpsons via Itchy and Scratchy because there's no other right. way you could do that on The Simpsons. So over the years, as they started doing them less and less, I, I can't say that I I missed its presence. But as an adult revisiting them, they do make me chuckle just because of the sheer absurdity of the violence and some of the horrible, horrible ways Itchy destroys Scratchy really does make me laugh. <laughs> so, yeah, it's I, I wouldn't say I have a love-hate relationship or anything like that or that, like, oh, it's my favorite part of the show. And I know there are certain people who do, like, absolutely love it. But I appreciate it for what it is. And I guess in a way, I'm also glad that The Simpsons were able to move beyond that as time went on as they found their voice in a sense and and no longer needed to use itchy and scratchy as a means to to talk about what they wanted to talk about. Yeah. I'm sure there's a whole like university dissertation that could be written about (laughs) itchy and scratchy's place within the Simpsons universe, but Uh, totally for at least the first many seasons, they tried to have like one episode every season that kind of focused on itchy and scratchy Yeah, and find some way to extend it, whether it's the movie or a controversy or you know, Itchy and Scratchy lands. One of the things I love about this episode is that, again, Itchy and Scratchy are used as a vehicle for multiple parodies. Like, obviously, we have the yeah. main Westworld parody, but you also get 
um, the Fantasia parody and the Pinocchio parody. And like I said, the sort of like this idea of Walt Disney and his relationship to, you know, uh, politics and popular culture. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's just I love that they're able anti-Semitism. To... <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, like, that's what I mean. Like, I think if there's something that they want to talk about that they can't find a natural way to do it, then they can just do it through Richie and Scratchy. Right. I think that's a brilliant sort of writing trick that they can do that and it never feels out of place. It's never one of those things that totally. you're like, what? what? Like, wh- where is this coming from? But on the other hand, like this episode also manages to cram in so many movie parodies and references that have like nothing to do with Itchy and Scratchy. Oh no, yeah, no, exactly. These are the seasons where they're just weaving them in back to back where it's like, not only do they have Westworld and Jurassic Park, which are kind of the main big ones, they reference Last Action Hero, Witness, which is a, a great <laughs> movie that I don't think anyone sees anymore, but it's an awesome movie. Jaws, yeah. The Birds, Saturday Night Fever, like Gremlins. Yeah, they managed to get a lot of stuff in here and just weave it together very naturally. So I, I love this episode. I think it's fantastic. Before we get into the parody stuff, there's also just like so many great lines in this episode, including <laughs> probably my most quoted line in real life. Every time we park somewhere where we have to sort of remember where we parked, you know, we're going to Ikea or we're downtown Toronto and we're parking underground or whatever. I always, 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 always say, remember where we parked? We're We're in in the the itchy itchy lot. lot. And uh, my (laughs) wife just gives me a look of like, what? Like, what What? are you talking about? Like, nobody ever gets it, but I I always have to say it because it just, I think it's so funny, but um, yeah. Totally. It gets at one of those sort of observational truths. You know, whenever we park at the airport, that's exactly what it feels like, where it's like, oh, good, we're in the E section along with like (laughs) 2000 other cars, you know, like it's impossible to find. It's funny because we got a um, season's pass to the zoo the last two years and the parking lot is Mm -hmm. they have the elephant section and the anteater section and the like beluga whale section. That's where it mostly comes to mind, especially of just like, oh, I'm supposed to remember what random animal section I'm in as if like there's any way to keep that in my brain. Totally. I think more than anything, this is really a parody of Disneyland, right? Right. I think that's sort of where this idea started was they wanted to like, you know, poke these sensors in the eye and (laughs) they were like, okay, how do we do that? Well, let's do like an itchy and scratchy theme park. And all of the writers often talk about their relationship to Disney movies, but also Disneyland because of course, you know, that's where they are. They've, they've been there many times. They know it super well. Comes up in lots and lots of episodes. But this has all sorts of references to Disneyland. Uh, you know, the parking being one of them. They have, <laughs> like, the Disney Bucks joke. They have, yep. like, Splash Mountain. They have, you know, the Roger Myers story. Like, all of those things. Euro. They yeah, Euro, Euro Disney. Itchy, scratchy Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. My children need wine. <laughs> yeah exactly and like one of the more obscure ones is the electric light parade have you do you know what that is so i never saw the electric light parade but it was like one of those things where i guess it would have been like those early years of disneyland where it was like a big thing like my dad talked about it being a big thing i went to disneyland for the first time when i was probably like four or five so i don't really remember most of it But that Mm -hmm. would have been in, so it would have been the early 90s, like Disney Renaissance era. Aladdin had just come out. Like that was the big thing that was all over the park was all the Aladdin stuff. So it was kind of when the park was undergoing a very big sort of change and some of those things were being phased out or modified or 
you know, right. taken in a new direction, which they constantly are doing. Is the electric light parade still even a thing? Like, So I'd been to Disney World when I was like probably right. six years old or something like that. But I'd never been to Disneyland before until I think it was last year. Uh, oh, you know, wow. Okay. COVID brain. So I, I don't remember what year it was. But <laughs> right. Time has no meaning anymore. But I've since COVID. And we went to Disneyland with my in-laws who love Disneyland. They are in California and have been there many, many times. So they're sort of like the experts that you want to go with. And when we went, they were getting ready to revive the electric light parade and the fireworks display. And so we were there the week before they were going to launch it officially, but they tested it out while we were there. Okay. And so cool. we got to see basically the dress rehearsal, which was great because the crowds weren't as bad. And uh, yeah, the electric light parade's pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because for those who aren't familiar, it's just like a bunch of neon like floats, yeah. right? Like it's not, yeah, it's nothing to write home about. Happens at night. Has yeah. a very annoying song, which is replicated well, I mean, very well Disney, in The Simpsons. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's very repetitive, though. It's like, oh, okay. it's just like on loop and with these like slow moving neon floats and stuff. So it was kind of funny that they still continue to celebrate that. But, you know, the fireworks display was was ace. Yeah, that, that was pretty incredible. It is kind of interesting, though, that they chose Itchy and Scratchy. And I'm sure, like you say, it's because the in-universe history of Itchy and Scratchy is based on Disney and they've already sort of established mm-hmm. that. But, you know, Krusty is sort of the the character that has like all the merchandise and is sort of the sellout. And in a weird way, you almost expect like Krusty Land would have been the place that they would mm. go. So it's interesting that they chose Itchy and Scratchy, but knowing that it's because they really wanted to just saturate the episode with violence, it sort of seems like <laughs> that's why they're like, okay, well, let's do a Disneyland parody and we'll use Itchy and Scratchy and we can just like amp up the violence to an absurd degree. I mean, I love yeah. I love the scene where they're in the diner and they're all placing their orders and Marge is like horribly offended by everything and then <laughs> yeah I'll have, and, and then I'll have the baby guts <laughs> you disgust me mom that's veal <laughs> which They're is just like again it's, it's like it's so yeah, funny too yeah no i mean it's just it's a perfect simpsons moment but yeah but yeah. why westworld do you like that's my question it's like why westworld so i think this is the sort of train of thought right is like okay we want to amp up the violence okay how do we do that we do that with a theme park. Right. So they have that idea. And then they're like, okay, we have a setting, but what's the story? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like what actually goes wrong? They, you know, so act one, they want to go and then they go and then they get there. And then what happens? Right. And right. so I think that that's really what it boils down to is they were sort of like, okay, you know, like so the robots go haywire. Oh yeah. Like that movie Westworld. Like right, that seems right, to be right. kind of the train of thought is like, as soon as you do that and you're thinking about theme parks, well, immediately you're going to think of Michael Crichton because he has not one, but two movies that are about theme parks going awry, both Westworld and Jurassic Park written by Michael Crichton. But interestingly, of course, Westworld is actually directed by Michael Crichton as well. Right, yeah. Whereas, of course, Jurassic Park is our, our friend Steven Spielberg. So, yeah, the main parts that are actually parodies of Westworld are, of course, like, the robots going haywire, right? Yep. That sort of originates with this movie in a lot of ways. But then also all of the sort of areas that are under the theme park where they're like repairing robots and they have a control center where they're like being like, we're out of board license plates. Like all of that <laughs> stuff is really taken from this movie as well. 
Yeah, because um, not to interrupt, but I you brought it up, so now I have to mention it. it <laughs> as someone who has a Bort license plate keychain, uh, and Bort <laughs> has become one of my favorite running gags. Bort? Oh, come on, Bort? Mommy, Bobby, buy me a license plate! No, come along, Bort. Are you talking to me? No, my son is also named Bort. In fact, our show, when we had to register with like Apple Podcasts or whatever, we needed to come with like a production company. So I'm pretty sure our production company is called Also Named Bort Productions. Indeed. Um, And of course, if you go, my cousin who's been to the Simpsons land at Universal Studios, which is the snake is eating its tail. But uh, if you go to Simpsons land, they have personalized license plates that you can buy. And the gift shop is perpetually out of Bort license plates. You can't get one. Uh, which is just a <laughs> just which like is a the nice, episode, yeah. Which is a nice little touch. So um, there you go. We need more Bort license plates in the gift shop. I repeat, we are sold out of Bort license plates. But yeah, I, I yeah, like you get the underground stuff. You get the the you know they remove the face of the robots, much like that <laughs> shot in, yeah. in Westworld. I really wish they wouldn't scream. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's funny because you, you made this point in the day of the dolphin episode of like, if you're going to do a parody of crazy dolphins, you have to talk about day of the dolphin. This is one of those ones where I'm like, where you say like, oh, well, when you talk about a theme park gone awry, you got to talk about Westworld. And I have to wonder like, do you? And we're going to get into this because like, was Westworld that well known? Like, it's funny because now there's the HBO TV series. So like, I think it's more in the popular culture than it maybe was. But like when this episode came out 30 years ago, was Westworld that well known? And I, we're going to get into it. Or is this just like, again, the movie nerds at, at the Simpsons sort of flexing their trivia? I don't, I don't know. So, you know, without spoiling too much, I think the, the short answer to that is, this is a cult hit, right? Okay. It was popular at the time, but I think that there's like appreciation among a very specific group of people that right. happened to be very influential. And so it, it has this weirdly long tail, but not mm. in a popular way. This is like part of that long tail. And certainly Michael Crichton has a, a remarkable career jurassic park obviously but like the thing that everybody sort of forgets is a michael Crichton property er like one of the most yeah. successful dramatic television series of the 90s is a michael Crichton show well okay yeah. so maybe is there anything else you want to say about the episode or should we jump into the movie because i feel like this is a good sort of like jumping off point to to actually yes. talk about the movie so i think we have to because i i really could just keep talking about this episode forever because i think it's, okay there are so many funny gags in this but we should dig into the movie itself so on that note adam how would you sum this movie up in a sentence as the newbie this one's pretty easy uh <laughs> guy goes on vacation at theme park and it goes badly when the robots go awry sure basically that's fair i mean it's it's a pretty simple plot a pretty simple movie honestly yeah it it really is there isn't actually a lot of plot to this at all and i have to say it's funny because i one of my notes is like i i i I paused the movie because i had to go to the bathroom and i was about halfway through and i'm like um is anything gonna happen because like it literally we were at the halfway point and i was like i've seen the the parody and i like know i know where this is going but like nothing's happened yet 
And apart from just like we're seeing these people interact in this crazy universe. So and sure enough, like within like five or 10 minutes of of me thinking that that's when it really does kick off and you get into the chase, as it were. But yeah, it's a very, very simple premise. And I kind of appreciate that. I've talked a lot about my appreciation for simple ideas well executed and I think this definitely would fall into that category. So I mean, like Jurassic Park is also parody in the Simpsons episode, yes. right? And, and couldn't be more you... different in terms of scope and scale. Like when yes. comparing Jurassic Park to Westworld, like they're... but but at the, at the same time, like they feel very different, mostly because the movie making. In That's what I mean. Jurassic yeah, like in Park, terms of, in terms of yeah. the scope and scale of this film, like Jurassic right. Park is this massive blockbuster and westworld feels almost like an indie movie in a way yeah totally but the thing that's interesting i think is that when you really strip away all of the extras on jurassic park it's the same plot and it's no it's just as simple (laughs) it's just as simple there is a theme park with dinosaurs people go there expecting a good time and it goes badly (laughs) that's it that's the whole plot the the biggest difference between the two is that jurassic park sort of deals with the existential idea of, like, should we or should right. we not do this? Which yes. Westworld completely avoids. I, in fact, one of my notes that I said was that I kind of like that the film doesn't really address why the robots are malfunctioning, how the <laughs> right. robots are malfunctioning. For only very briefly. Yeah. Like, it's just, it kind of glosses over that. And I, I, again, I really appreciate that. It just sort of lets it mm-hmm. be. To me, that's the difference between the two movies, is that it's A, the scope and scale, and then B, obviously, Jurassic Park digs into the sort of, like, chaos theory yeah exactly all that stuff yeah the ian malcolm of it all but um, right right but like that's the interesting thing too is like in a lot of ways this feels like a rough draft for jurassic park where jurassic park has all the bells and whistles it has amazing set pieces but it also has the philosophy both of which are kind of missing from this movie but there's still also some pretty ambitious things in here. Again, like you said, on a more indie scale. It's not like big flashy stuff, but there's some weird stuff in here, which we'll dig into. So, Nate, what is your background with this movie? Because I had never seen it before. You had sort of like picked it and I was excited. This has yeah. been on my watch list for years, but you had seen it before, correct? Yeah, so I had seen it before. And I, again, there are a lot of movies that I kind of forget exactly when I saw them. This is one of those. But there was sort of a phase that I went through where I watched all of these old 1970s uh, sci-fi movies like this, Logan's Run, Silent Running, like all of these movies that are, you know, kind of influential, but also like really of the era feel very dated, hadn't been remade at the time. Well, and, Lo- and not for lack of trying with Logan's Run. Every every right. few years, that they announce that it's finally going to be remade, and then it kind of disappears. Like, but. So weird. <laughs> uh, such a weird idea to remake that movie. But, you know, like, actually, now it's coming back to me. I think I watched Logan's Run first, because yeah. the set is a shopping mall, a real shopping mall. And right, I was yes. writing my undergraduate thesis about a shopping mall and trying to kind of dig into all of the pop culture related to shopping malls and how they've been depicted and how they live in our imagination and all that stuff. So I think I started with that one and I was like, whoa, this is such a different approach to sci-fi than what you got at the time I was watching it and also now. And so I think that kind of got me interested in this era of sci-fi. And when you dig into it, it's like there are a few movies that really rise to the top in that world. 
And, you know, Westworld's one of those. Well, you managed to find a plot synopsis from a 1983 VHS release, which... I don't know if you realize this, but that is all the more interesting because the film is apparently set in 1983. Did you know that? Oh, I did that's, not know that. That's How what did I discovered. I, I, reading trivia and stuff, I don't think it's mentioned in the film itself, unless I missed yeah. it. But apparently, it's set in 1983. So. It's just another in a long line of science fiction movies where they set it in too near a future for like how right. different things were gonna like. Terminator comes to mind, um, Back to the Future. Like, yeah. There's a series of these movies that were made in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s where they're like, okay, it's going to be set 10 years in the future, and we will have flying cars and living on right. the moon. It's like <laughs> not even close, guys. With this kind of movie, part of the idea is that like the world is basically exactly as you imagine it, except there's this one other thing that, that works differently. And, yes. like, I think that's what they're trying to do with this movie. When it's not like Back to the Future, it's kind of like, okay, guys. Like, <laughs> that's that's maybe a little ridiculous. But this is basically, like, you basically live in the exact same world. There just is this weird theme park where you can go kill robots for fun. Yeah, um, which really is, I mean, doesn't exist, but is not out of not the realm that of possibility. Maybe out of the realm of possibility in 1983, but certainly to have robots that you're going to have intercourse with um but yeah which we're gonna get into all this but anyway here's really are we (laughs) well i don't know man uh here is the plot synopsis from the 1983 vhs release of michael crichton's westworld come pay a visit to westworld where the old west comes alive once again in the not-too-distant future, directed by award-winning writer Michael Crichton from his own script, this story of a technological paradise suddenly turned nightmare is a genuine shocker. An excellent cast... Wow, okay. An excellent <laughs> cast makes this vision of a world gone wrong all too believable, and topping the bill there is Yul Brenner's remarkably eerie performance as a robot who develops a taste for the kill. A lawyer and businessman, Richard Benjamin and James Brolin, are among the visitors to Westworld, a futuristic theme park, in quotations, where the gun hands and dance hall girls are all robots programmed to serve the guests' violent and lustful fantasies. See, I told you we were going to talk about the sex stuff. Until something (laughs) goes wrong with their circuitry. No longer the guests' obliging victim, the black-clad humanoid gunslinger, played by Brenner, turns on the two heroes. The ultimate amusement turns deadly serious as the men's are pursued to a deadly climax by an implacable, unstoppable foe. That's, That's pretty much it. That's, That's the Wild West world, guys. They didn't um, really miss almost anything. Yeah. Except, I, I, except, I guess, so the one thing it does miss, which is a weird characteristic of this movie, is that even though it's called Westworld, and even though this description doesn't really mention any of this, there are actually three worlds at this theme park. Yes, there right? are. There's Westworld. Yeah. There's like a medieval world. Yeah. And then there's an ancient Roman world. Yes. It's maybe like 85% set in Westworld and yeah. then yeah. 17 to 18% set in world. medieval world. And then, yeah, like there's like three or three seconds in, in Roman world. Well, okay. So, but that, that leads me to my next question, Nate. Which world would you want to visit? And I think I know the answer because I, I know you pretty well and I know what you, yeah. I know your love of uh, Westerns. So I imagine. Yeah, I think it would probably be the Wild West, but yeah. honestly, I don't know if I'd want to visit any of these. I mean, it's, it's, well, uh, in, it's in, a, in a world bleak. where they don't go wrong, which one would you yeah, want to visit? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, okay. I, I guess probably Westworld. Let's be real. Michael Crichton talks a little bit about this, and I'm kind of moving ahead a little bit here, but, he, you know, all of these, at the time this movie comes out, are actually super dated genres. They're sort of meant to be a little throwbacky, and the movie even kind of looks a little throwbacky. It's like Robin Hood movies, and not like Sergio Leone westerns, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But like old Hollywood westerns. Like, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what he's getting at there. But yeah, it's weird. <laughs> well, not sure where he's what he's getting at here is maybe uh, part of my uh, thesis for this entire movie. But um, yeah. OK, well, to that end, let's let's talk a little bit about like where this movie came from. Uh, you did a little yeah. bit of research. So, I mean, we've touched on him a little bit, but like give me the background on Michael Crichton. Like, who is this guy? Because he's actually for those who don't know, he is a fascinating individual. Totally. Yeah. Michael Crichton is a pretty influential piece of our pop culture, I would say. And, like, especially when we were growing up, he, like, just ran the show. His superpowers are, number one, identifying ideas that are sort of at the cutting edge of science in some way that would make great thrillers, and then translating them for a popular audience so that people can actually understand what the hell they're about. And again, like, if you just think about Jurassic Park, like, that's the perfect example of this, where it's just like, okay... G- genetics, right? And the uh, the ability to yep. clone things. Like, super exciting technology that could have big implications for the way we live our lives. And, you know, he sees the potential in that to talk about, like, what could we clone that's the most exciting thing? Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And, and also, like, you know, <laughs> what will actually drive that innovation? It's not the greater good. It's nope. entertainment. Yeah, totally. Right? It's, it, and so, like, and that's very much like this movie as well, where it's like, Okay, we can like build lifelike robots that could do anything a human can do. What do we do? We make a western themed theme park where you could go kill them. <laughs> or or f- them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or f- them. He writes the kind of science fiction that I love, which is I think when yeah. most people hear the term science fiction, they think space. Uh they think right. Star Wars or Star Trek. Like that's most people's concept of what sci-fi is. And I think that generally speaking is sort of what it tends to be. But he writes science fiction in the truest sense of the term, which is fiction based in science, which is a genre that I absolutely love. So, you know, anything Mm -hmm. related to uh, viral outbreaks or, you know, genetic stuff or, you know, like even again, like we talked about ER, like ER is to call it science fiction is maybe not necessarily it's more a soap opera, I guess, realistically, but it is still like it's Mm -hmm. a medical drama. So it is science fiction. So that's what I've always (laughs) sort of found fascinating about Crichton is that like he is perhaps the best known science fiction writer who writes that kind of science fiction as opposed to like your Gene Roddenberry who writes, you know, space sci-fi or whatever. Yeah. And so just to put a pin on like how influential Michael Crichton was in 95, the year after this episode airs. Crichton had the number one best-selling book in America, The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park, the number one movie in America, Congo, and the number one TV show, ER. No other writer has ever achieved this before or after. Wow. So, like, he was just running the show. Like, he, he was so influential on different aspects of our culture, and this movie is his directorial debut basically he directed like a a tv movie before this but nothing theatrically released um are you are you familiar with his writing at all like have you read any of his i've seen other films of his obviously both 
written and directed by him. But I, I have to admit, I've never actually read any of his stuff. No, I'm the same. I've never actually read any of his books. But going through all of the movies that he's directed, or, well, more so the movies he's written, to be honest, I really like a lot of the movies that he's written. And so I feel like I do need to dig more into his books. But So the crazy thing is that he was actually trained as a doctor. He started writing his books in med school under, like, pseudonyms. And at first he was just kind of writing, like, schlocky genre stuff, basically. But the first book that he published under his real name was The Andromeda Strain, um, which became, like, a bestseller and then was actually, of course, adapted into a movie by Robert Wise in 1971. And apparently this was his biggest hit since The Sound of Music. So it's a pretty successful movie, uh, a movie I have not seen. I have seen it. Because, again, mm-hmm. it sort of deals with, like, a viral outbreak. Like, very much my shit. But, um, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, is also very much a 1971 thriller in that it is boring as hell. Um, sure. I did, I did not enjoy it. Apparently, they did remake it as a miniseries in, like, the 2000s mm. with, like, Eric Bana, I think. Oh. Which I have not seen. But the premise of it was really exciting to me. And I was, like, super stoked to watch it. And then I, like, sat down and watched it. I was like, this is this is not not good um yeah, but you're like I, i'll just watch re- more regenesis yeah i, I literally <laughs> in my letterbox review i was like i could have watched like four episodes of regenesis and i should have <laughs> um but i also don't think i really like robert wise as a director um well I, that's yeah it's not <laughs> like uh you know star, star trek the motion picture is is a particularly like thrilling movie either, i mean so. careful what you say the, nate you we <laughs> the, the, hey, you don't there want... are good star trek movies that is not my favorite one so okay well fair enough fair <laughs> Yeah, so so anyway, that was sort of like his sort of first foray into film in the sense of writing the, an adapted book, but he also actually spent time on set watching Robert Wise direct and kind of like learning the ropes from him. Okay. Um, so that was also, I think, an important step towards this movie. Like I said, he directed uh, a TV movie called Pursuit in 1972, okay. not a movie I've ever heard of or seen, and that kind of brings us to Westworld. The interesting thing about this is that it's not adapted from a book of right. his. There is no, well, there there was no Westworld book when this was released. He might have kind of released this later as like a novelization. But the original idea was a screenplay because, like I said, all of the sort of reference points for like, what is this theme park is basically allowing people to live out their movie fantasies, like living right. in a Western, right? Or living in a, a, a sort of, medieval times uh, action movie uh, yeah. swashbuckler that kind of thing so it didn't really make sense for it to be a book right uh, they he wanted to kind of integrate not just literary tropes but also like the shots that are in those kinds of movies mm-hmm. like he mm-hmm. talks mm-hmm. about in one of the, the interviews with him like in westworld whenever the good guys ride out of town there's always a crane shot that that sort of you know, booms yeah, upward yeah, yeah, yeah. as they as they ride away, and then whenever they come in town, you do the reverse move. Like that's totally. a Western trope in movies, and like you can't do that in a book. So he right. always kind of imagined this as a movie, and apparently the sort of original concept was inspired by two things: Disneyland animatronics, which is again we're coming the Ouroboros is eating its tail. Um, <laughs> he went to Disneyland and saw, uh, I believe it was the Hall of Presidents, like. You know, uh, mm. Abraham Lincoln <laughs> yep, do, doing his whole speech. Yes, that horrifying animatronic president. And was like, wow. Again, for the time, like, that was pretty lifelike. I think that maybe opened in the 60s. So it was sort of like 
fairly new at the time. Right. Um, and then the other thing that he sort of witnessed was the training that astronauts were going through. Interesting. Okay. Astronauts have to learn how to control their physiology so much, right? right? Like right, right, right. their heartbeat, their breath, especially early on, the things they were learning to do were like these complicated procedures that you had to do in an exacting kind of way. And oh. what he was sort of like piecing together in his brain is like, okay, we're now able to make these robots that seem very human. And meanwhile, we're training these humans to be more like machines. And that was sort of the inspiration for what becomes Westworld. Uh, right. Now, <laughs> all that said, in other sources, I've also seen him say like, yeah, people always ask me this question of like where I got an idea. And I've taken to just making up stories because, <laughs> because like often it's just kind of like, you know, it's mysterious. Like, you know, you're a creative person and things just kind of like come to you in weird ways. Right. But, you know, he did think that he was probably influenced by these things. But yeah, and like, so this is sort of the very beginning of his career, and he goes on to both direct and write a lot of movies after this. Yep. He also directed The Great Train Robbery, um, mm -hmm. which I've never seen. I've, I've actually never seen any of his other movies. I have that seen he's directed. it. Um, oh, yeah? It's, it's fine. It's <laughs> interesting, because it's Donald Sutherland and Sean Connery, I want to say. Oh, my. Um, and with, like, big, like, mutton chop, like, it's... Of course, yeah, it's. I don't really remember anything about it beyond the costumes and the sort of like set design, and it's got that like yeah. decidedly like seventies look and feel. But um, right, this is the thing I will say about Michael Crichton is that, and I think this movie sort of exemplifies it. I think he's a really interesting writer and has really interesting yeah. ideas. I'm not sure that he's a particularly talented filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree. I mean, like, like this, this is the this thing movie... that his concepts, especially like his his premises yeah. are so brilliant often that I th I feel like looking at his career, Hollywood gave him chances to direct again and again and again and again and again. And very few of them seem to be that successful. This might even be I, I, I didn't do the math on this, but this might be the most successful movie that he directed. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his filmography here. So we've got Westworld, a movie called Coma, The Great Train Robbery, Looker, Runaway, Physical Evidence, reshoots for the John McTiernan movie, The 13th Warrior, and then a video game called Timeline. So um, I, I, no disrespect to the man, the late great Michael Crichton, but like, you know, we discussed this again, weirdly going back to Day of the Dolphin, like the workmanlike uh, filmmaking on display there. This yeah. is kind of a workmanlike movie. There's not to say there's no flashes of style. Like there's that brilliant shot at the beginning of the movie with the like reflection in the glasses of the guy. Yeah. Um, and then all the robot vision stuff. Like there's some really cool stuff in this movie, but for the most part, it's like, it's very flat. L let's put it this way. I don't think Jurassic Park would have been the success it was were it directed by Michael Crichton. Like, you need no, a Steven no. Spielberg to take these ideas and elevate them to the level of spectacle that they arguably deserve. I think, like, not only does he come up with great premises, but, again, having kind of read into this particular movie a fair amount, I think, like, something that I would also add is that you know, a lot of the most impressive visual parts of this movie were in the script where, mm, like, okay. he actually wrote out, like, I want this to happen. 
And then they had to figure out, like, visually, what does that actually mean, right? right. Like, the ro- robot vision that, that is so famous in this movie is in the script. And okay. he didn't know exactly what that would mean. But he sort of demanded, like, if this is supposed to be how a machine sees the world, let's make the imagery using a machine. And it's like, at the time, we'll get into it, but that was pretty radical. And so it's yeah, like... totally. You know, that's not necessarily the work of a director, per se. You know, some of it is. It's sort of in that crossover territory. But just the fact that he puts that stuff in the script where, you know, it can prompt an amazing director like Steven Spielberg to be like, okay, let's figure out how we're going to do this. You know, mm. it's like get the, the woman lies on a on the, the sick dinosaur, right? You know, like all that stuff yeah, like, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you actually have to think about how that's going to happen. And if you have the budget and you have the right filmmaker, I mean... It's, it can be magical. I mean, we talked a lot about Jurassic Park, but some of the other movies he's written are The Terminal Man, which I have not seen. Jurassic Park, of course. Yep. Disclosure, which is, I again, pretty rough. Congo and Twister, which I, yeah. I also love Twister. That's I forgot that movie. he wrote Twister, which is, yeah, that's yeah. great. Twister's great. And yeah. that's actually, that's another example where it's it's not exactly science fiction, it's like what you were saying about ER, where it's like, I don't think there's almost anything in that movie that's like completely unimaginable technology yep. wise yeah, yeah, yeah. or like futuristic, but it is a movie about science that is fictional. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, I feel like this is a perfect transition to sort of talk about like the highlights and the lowlights of this movie, because I think this is a movie that has some really high highs, some really low lows, and as a result, like, in the aggregate, is maybe a pretty average movie. But it's also, yeah. like, spoiler alert, like, I didn't hate it. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed my time in Westworld, despite it being a deeply mediocre, at times, movie. Yeah, so I think we have to start by talking about the premise a little bit. The thing that I had to kind of remind myself of with this is just like when this movie came out mm-hmm. and just how early it was in the grand scheme of all these things. Because like now I feel like people probably watch this movie and they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's like a sci-fi thing, right? <laughs> but like just for some context, this movie comes out in 1973. Okay. The very first operating system, Unix, was invented in 1969. The very first computer virus was 1971, two years earlier. Okay. Uh, the very first, like, popular video game, Pong, is the year before. Right. Right? Microsoft is founded in 1975, two years after this, and Apple was founded in 1976, three years after this. Right. So, like, okay. personal computing doesn't exist. Right. Computer viruses barely exist. And he's imagining a world where not only do we have, like, robots, but, like, the explanation for why they go haywire is essentially a computer virus. Yeah. But... The language for that barely even existed. The robot vision in this movie, uh, jumping ahead a little bit again here, but it's basically like pixelated. It's what we would call pixelated, right? Didn't exist at the time. There were no JPEGs. There were no no image files. That didn't exist. the, The only place that that existed was NASA. Like a NASA scientist invented the word pixel or kind of revived it to describe the tiny bits of information that they used to take pictures of the moon and Mars in an academic paper. 
when they're describing the the computer vision in this movie, like in, you know, American cinematographer and things like that, they just describe it as a mosaic or a blocky image because the word pixel is not in popular right, use exist. yet. Yeah. Like, and again, 1973. So weirdly, the same year as Day of the Dolphin and the same year as The Exorcist. <laughs> Um, but we're still like a few years out from Star Wars. Like Star Wars is sort of yeah. that we've talked about a lot. Of, it's sort of this turning point in American cinema in terms of like both stylistically, but also, you know, in terms of like pacing and editing and all this stuff. So like this movie is very much ahead of its time. I, obviously, like the whole time I was watching it, or at least for that final act, the the chase, as we'll call it, or I'll keep referring yeah. to it. I couldn't stop thinking about Terminator. And, like, yeah. this is 20 years before Terminator is going to come out. So it is remarkable in that sense. And you're right. I think we've talked about this ad nauseum on this show of, like, going back and revisiting these older films and watching them with a modern sensibility and a modern eye. It's very easy to forget what it must have been like at the time for it to be doing mm-hmm. this. And sure, there have been movies that have maybe come along and done it better since. But it very much was the first one. And so you ha- yeah. kind of have to give it some credit for that alone. Yeah. And I think like it honestly, of all the movies we've watched, I think this might be the most extreme example of that for me. It's hard to even wrap your head around how primitive <laughs> um, yeah. computing was at this point in time when he's imagining this whole future of computers and robots and all that sort of stuff. And not only that, like um, how prescient it is in terms of, you know, conversations we're having right now about the morality and the ethics of AI and robotics yeah. and like the idea of even just like on a, on a very sort of basic level of like automation and, and how that's going to replace a certain level of jobs and careers. And what is the ethics and morality around that? And how do we compensate the people who are going to be replaced by automation and mm-hmm. robots? And like this is conversations we're having now 50 years later. Like it's just. Yeah. So it was way ahead of its time. Well, and, and like one of the things that I thought was really interesting hearing the, the scientists in this movie talk about the robots that really resonated today, that they were like, well, we don't even really understand how these machines work because <laughs> yeah. they're machines built by other machines and they kind of have their own internal logic. And it's like, that's exactly how machine learning works today, where it's like, yeah. you know, it may come up with a good answer sometimes, but we actually have no idea how it arrives at that answer And that's really hard to accept and wrap your head around. (laughs) And again, when you start talking about things like professional ethics, like, you know, who is liable for these things, you know, which is pretty relevant to this movie, too, where it's like, well, I don't know, are the engineers liable or same shit with AI and machine learning today that we're already thinking about? Like, can an AI give you legal advice? You know, right. Like, technically yeah. speaking, it probably can. But is it ethical to allow it to? Probably not, because who do you hold liable? So the, definitely like that is all in here. You brought up Star Wars. The other thing that really struck me as being quite prescient in this movie is the way we entertain ourselves and our desire for immersion. You definitely see this, obviously, in like open world video games. That's a perfect yep analogy i mean hell we have red dead redemption right <laughs> yeah, i mean like totally. isn't that basically westworld it's yeah. just that it's happening virtually instead of in in real life but then you also have the sort of recent shift in disneyland what are the newest yep. rides at disneyland right it's galaxy's edge and the whole Which you thing did about when that, you went to disneyland right i sure did and like the most different thing about it compared to the other areas is that like 
There are a few rides. You don't go on that many rides. Most of what it is is walking around and being treated by stormtroopers like you're in the movie, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. like, you can go get your lightsaber, and you can go get a drink at a cantina. And the rides are all about immersion, first and foremost. Right. They're yeah, not yeah. roller coasters. They're about feeling like you're in a starship. They're about being chased by Kylo Ren. Like, that's what it's all about. Right, because Disneyland, like, the Magic Kingdom, I guess, is what we would refer to it as. Like, there's yeah. no there's no real immersion there. Like, yes, okay, cool, you get to see Cinderella's yeah. castle and, and so on and so on. But, like, you never really feel like, oh, I'm in an animated movie because like it's the suspension of disbelief and all that stuff. Whereas like, yeah, like you say, galaxy's edge and all the star Wars stuff, it really, the whole purpose is to make you feel like you are living in a star Wars movie. Well, I think like the biggest difference is that when you see Cinderella in the magic kingdom, she treats you like you are you. Right. Whereas when you're in galaxy's edge, they treat you like rebel scum. Okay. Interesting. It's not just that they're role playing your sort of softly, gently role playing. Interesting. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And like the most extreme example of this was the Galactic Star Cruiser. Do you remember this whole news thing? That was the hotel that they opened yes. or whatever. And then it didn't yes. do so well because it was like didn't exorbitantly you? expensive. And But again, what an analogy for this movie. It's yeah. the same thing. Literally. What yeah. they were selling was an immersive experience where you're basically like locked in this hotel and you're part of this sort of drama that's like you're in a Star Wars movie. It's the same yeah. basic thing. And this was 1973. So anyway, when you think about that, it's like how ahead of its time this movie was. I do think that's kind of astonishing. And not in kind of like a, oh, you know, they got some things right, they got some things wrong. But like, there's actually very little in this movie premise-wise where you're like, ugh, that's ridiculous. Oh, no, you know? like, I, I, I honestly, like, at no point was I like, oh, this is too far-fetched. That's sort right. of the brilliance of it is that it all feels right down to the sex robots uh all feels very <laughs> like yeah capitalism if we had the technology today this would exist and to a certain extent it does and right. we'll probably get a little bit further in the next 20 30 years i wouldn't put anything past us because that's just that's unfortunately what we do so yeah. um yeah so I want to talk about the opening of the movie because it's one of my favorite parts, I think. I was yeah. really sort of caught off it's guard, but I I really, really enjoyed it. I will say I did feel it went on a, like a tad too long. Um, sure. And, and again, it's just sort of this like... His 70s pacing la- thing. Yeah, it's his lack of experience as a director, I think, sort of shows through there. But it's a really mm. interesting concept of like it, the film starts with this essentially an advertisement for the series of theme parks. Um, is it called mm. Dulles? Is that, is De- that Delos? Delos, yeah. Which is like a reference to some Greek thing. Delos is an airport. <laughs> yeah, Delos is an airport. <laughs> Delos is a Greek island. Or anyway, I, I I did read some piece of trivia and I don't remember what it was. But anyway, um, sure. And and essentially, it's a news report or advertising, and they're interviewing people who have come back from the various worlds to say like, "What was your experience like?" It's setting up what you're gonna get in this movie, but it's this nice little piece of set dressing to establish the world that we're living in. And also it's just like, again, you get to see this sort of like 70s style. And I think it does a really good job of putting you in the time and place that the film is going to unfold in. Yeah, I, I love that. And you get to you get to hear these interviews with the people who who are coming back and they're like, you know, there's the one lady who's very like uh, kind of sheepish <laughs> about about it. But like essentially she's like, 
I got laid <laughs> yeah. by a robot. <laughs> what is the one thing that stands out in your mind about Roman world? Oh, well, I think it would be the man. I just feel marvelous. I mean, it's just a warm, glowing place to be. But yeah, no, it's I, you're totally right. And I, I love that they also like play with the aspect ratio here. Mm-hmm. Like it's a little mm-hmm. thing, but just kind of like really putting you into that format and all of that. It feels like an advertisement. The other thing that I, I noted in this advertisement is that the cost of going to Delos is $1,000 a day. So I was like, okay, well, like, how much is that? And I looked it up. It's about $7,000 a day. Holy shit. Right, which is a lot in today's money. But by comparison, so Disney's Galactic Star Cruiser cost $2,500 per night um, before it closed. And, like, part of the reason it closed is because that seemed too expensive. Would you pay $7,000 a day to have this experience? No. No, I would Um, not. No, I don't think so either. But, yeah, then after that, you're kind of on this hovercraft ride, right? Like like you Mm. said, there's that brilliant shot of, like, the pilot's face wearing these aviator sunglasses, and you just see the desert kind of rushing past in the reflection in his glasses, And that kind of introduces you into the movie proper and you're on a hovercraft and you kind of meet our main characters. So, Adam. Yeah, let's talk about our main characters. Yeah, what do you think of these two guys? The least charismatic leads in in the history (laughs) of any movie I've ever seen. I, Um, I was kind of like, who are these people? Because, yeah, well, so we have Peter Martin, who's played by Richard Benjamin. And we have John Blaine. I think probably a not so subtle reference to John Wayne, yeah, played by James Brolin. So uh, let's start with with good old Dick, <laughs> Dick Benjamin. Well, so it's um, funny. As soon as he comes on screen, I'm like, oh, I know that face. I know that face. I, <laughs> I like, knew you were going to say this. I was like, is he the guy from The Last of Sheila? And then I looked it up and I was like, he's the guy from The Last of Sheila. Because like, <laughs> right, right. you don't forget that mustache. Like, it's so funny. Like, it literally looks like it's a piece of makeup. He yeah. doesn't look like a real human being. Like, it looks like he's playing a character. But I guess that was his look it's at the his time. mustache. That was the times, you know? Yeah. And he's, yeah. um, I, like, he's fine in the movie. But, like, what's really crazy is that it does the classic sort of, like, 70s billing of, okay, so you're going to go left to right, but the person on the right, because we read left to right, is going to be a little bit higher in the frame in the billing. Right. Except he's like maybe like a centimeter or two higher. It's not like because I, I can't remember what the I think it's the Towering Inferno is the movie that most famously did this to, to try and compensate for the billing. But obviously, like Yul Brenner gets top billing, despite the fact that he basically has like three lines in this movie. But I guess he yeah. was the most famous person in the movie at the time. And then, of course, mm-hmm. James Brolin, I think it's safe to say goes on to greater fame than Richard Benjamin because I at least know who James Brolin is. Whereas like Richard Benjamin, I, again, I'd seen him in the last of Sheila, but otherwise do not know who this guy is. I mean, that's, what's so interesting about both of these guys is like, I feel like at the time they seemed like real up and coming guys who like were in a lot of like, you know, sort of well-respected movies of the time, right? I mean, like, James Brolin is more well-known, but, like, not that well-known, you know, in terms of I mean, I guess career. he's probably best known because he's married to Barbara Streisand and his son. And, yes, and now. Josh like, Brolin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I think that that's probably... I knew who he was because I knew him as Josh Brolin's dad. 
Oh, see, but I, I knew him because he was in the Amityville Horror. Like, to right, that was see, I, and I haven't that, seen that movie. Yeah, wait, well, just don't bother. It's, it, it sucks. Uh, I, I really <laughs> like the remake, but that, anyway, we're not going to get into that. But um, it's and it's funny. The thing that I, I actually know him most recently from is he was in the sitcom Life in Pieces, which is a great, okay. oh, a yeah. great show. It's on Netflix. It's a great show. Colin Hanks is in it, and Diane Weist. It's like a family ensemble comedy. It's very, very funny. Morgan mm-hmm. and I powered through it actually when we had our son, and so like we were home. She was on mat leave, and you just like when you have a newborn, you're just looking for anything to sort of fill the time. And it was the perfect yeah. show for that. That's the performance that I most associate with him. But like sure. to me, he's sort of the most famous name in the cast. But I recognize that at the time, that wasn't the case. I think it's sort of a generational thing, too, where he went on to do a lot of things, but Ewell Brenner had already done a lot of things. Right. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. But like, I think at the time, Peter Martin, I think, was seen as kind of like, you You know, he's like a Benjamin. Sorry, Richard Benjamin. <laughs> well, no, bad. but that's like that exactly right. Like you, those don't names even, are terrible. They're, yeah, they, they don't terri- register. The characters have terrible names. The actors don't have particularly <sighs> memorable names. He's not a particularly well, memorable. Peter Martin, two first names. Richard yes. Benjamin, also two first two names. First names. Very confusing. I think he was seen as as like a going concern because so like before this, right. he was he starred in Catch Twenty Two, huh? and he also starred in Portnoy's Complaint, which oh, is yeah, that, believe it or not classic. a movie. Hey, hey, it's parodied on The Simpsons, man. Oh, okay. Well, um, there we go. If I'm not mistaken, it is sort of a classic of Jewish literature, Jewish oh, okay. American literature. Okay. And is parodied in relation to Krusty the Clown, I believe. Um, okay, that so would anyway, make sense, yeah. So yeah, and then The Last of Sheila is released the same year as this, just before it. Which, like, I, I do want to pause. Like, probably most people don't know what that movie is, but I know that you have a soft spot for that one. I so, like. Yeah. You want to give the elevator of- pitch? So, okay, Last of Sheila is a murder mystery written by Stephen Sondheim. Yes, the musical composer Stephen Sondheim and directed by Anthony Perkins. Yes, the guy from Psycho. Uh, It is (laughs) and it it rules. And for the longest time, it was impossible to find. I watched a DVD that I got from the library because that was literally the only way you could get a copy of it. And then in Mm -hmm. the last couple of years... It finally got a uh, Blu-ray release by, I think it's like Warner Archives or whatever. But the reason it sort of became popular again is that it was apparently, according to Ryan Johnson, a huge influence on Knives Out. He put out a list of like the 10 movies that he sort of took the most inspiration from. And so I love that movie and I love murder mysteries in general. So I sort of sought out everything on that list. And this was one that, again, when you get the pitch of like, Stephen Sondheim wrote a murder mystery like I got <laughs> this I gotta see and it's again yeah, it's just yeah. like a cast of who's who's of like 1970 stars like it's just it like Richard Benjamin what, like Richard Benjamin and James Mason and yeah. I'm pretty, James Coburn I think is in it it's like it's just a wild but really really enjoyable and a lot easier to find now so I highly do recommend people check it out but yeah not necessarily a movie that anybody has heard of borderline doesn't exist all right well let's talk about John Blaine our James Brolin uh, a little bit here I mean again like he he is also someone who kind of had things going on like leading up to this so he was mm-hmm. in a few movies that were parodied in The Simpsons as well Von Ryan's Express 1965 um, sure. there's a scene where Uter gets left behind by a bus uh, I believe that is a parody of that movie um, okay. the, the Fantastic Voyage do you know that one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's where My they, sh- they sh- get movie. shrunk down 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like he's in that. He's in Skyjacked, which I believe mm. is exactly what it sounds like. It is an airplane hijacking movie Great. Of, from a very different era where that was like <laughs> n- not a terrorist act exactly yeah. and more just That's, like that, a that thing was that sometimes happens, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no big deal. Uh, yeah. Uh, but probably most notably, he actually uh, screen tested f- for the role of James Bond in Octopussy. Yes. yes. Uh, when Roger Moore was like not sure if he wanted to to go on. Um, and, and they very wisely this... decided no Americans will ever play James Bond. That was a terrible <laughs> idea. Right, right. So, so they hired a Welshman um, instead. Perfect. Well, yeah, maybe he's the one who like made that rule, uh, you know, a, a firm <laughs> yeah. thing. Probably the thing that I first saw him in, probably without knowing it, is a little show called Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Do you know this oh, show? I do not okay. know. I loved these kinds of shows growing up. This sounds like um, something you would love growing up, just based yeah. on the title. Basically, it was like two truths and a lie, but they would be telling stories. And okay. what I remember is this show was hosted by Jonathan Frakes, who's from Star Trek, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, the next the generation. Guy. And so Riker? I, is his I name loved... Riker? Riker. There you go. It's That's that's Yeah, right. yeah there you go. I so, never watched a Star Trek in my life, but I know. Yeah, Jonathan Frakes. So we used to watch Star Trek as a family, Star Trek The Next Generation. And so like that, I think, probably was my connection point was like, Jonathan Frakes! But apparently, James Brolin was the host for the first season of this. Um, okay, so I probably watched him host this show at some point. So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, He's someone who looks like a B-tier leading man, you know, where he's like yeah. pretty handsome, but just doesn't quite have the je ne sais quoi to like be, a, you know, a real contender in that kind of role, I guess. Well, you know, I guess without jumping too far ahead, but I think part of the issue is that this is a really interesting premise. But it's not much it's not much else like or at least what we end up getting. Like, I don't think these characters are particularly well drawn or particularly interesting. There's no real character development to them. We don't really know anything about them. which like to a certain extent I appreciate. Like I said, I'm glad that we don't get into the history of like who created the robots and why did they malfunction and like sort of the Prometheus of it all. Um (laughs) So I I do like that element, but I do think that, like, as a result, you get these kind of poorly drawn, empty shell of a character that at the end of the day, if you don't have a really, really compelling screen presence playing, you're not super invested in them. And that's the thing. I was never really overly invested in what happens to these characters. And while I did find the chase at the end of the film tense, I was on the edge of my seat for it. At the same time, I didn't really care if the guy lived or died and was sort of like, oh, well, I mean, I don't really know where this movie is going and maybe they'll kill the main character and then, you know, that wouldn't be super surprising and I I won't be upset by it. Yeah. The personal stakes seem really low. Yeah. And I think that's one of the flaws with the film is just like, again, it's a young filmmaker earlier and early in their career where he hasn't necessarily mastered everything about it. But I think, yeah, if not the strongest visual style and not necessarily the strongest character development, which obviously, like, you look at something like Jurassic Park, like, he gets there. Like, he does figure this yeah. out. Um, yeah. Or Twister, for that matter. Film, like, yeah, yeah also, totally. Okay, well, let's talk about Yul Brenner, though, because, like, he's, at the time, probably the biggest name in the film, despite the fact that the character that he plays, as I sort of alluded to earlier, has, like, essentially no dialogue. He's just sort of a presence so it's a little bit surprising that they get that big of a name to play 
this part. What I would say, though, is that, like, his last really memorable role in pop culture, I would say, is The Magnificent Seven, which is over 10 years before this. True. True enough. Because, like, he did the sequel to The Magnificent Seven called The Return of the Seven in 66. But, like, and then he did a bunch of other roles, but they're not remembered like that is. Right. So he was very well known, but for very specific things that at this point were kind of behind him. And from what I read, he also needed the money. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I also read that, yes. So I think that's part of it. But I want to back up because... Yul Brenner is just a, a fascinating human being. And so I just got to, I have to give you some of the details of his life story. So, yeah, because I know obviously like the thing that he's most famous for, the king and I, but right. uh, beyond that, I don't really know anything about the guy. Yeah, yeah. So he's considered sort of like one of the first Russian American movie stars, right. which is a pretty cool thing in and of itself. But he also had this incredible life story. And apparently he was also known to embellish it all the time. Like, give alternative names to talk about his parents uh, in in ways that they, they that are not exactly true or changed where he was born like all of those kinds of things but it's right. kind of remarkable that he would go to those lengths to make stuff up because the actual true story is so insane and these tall tales went to the point where even his obituary in the new york times actually got the details of his life wrong <laughs> oh wow so just to give like the the uh, the i can never remember which is canadian which is american the cliffs slash cole's notes version of it um, <laughs> Coles is canadian i'm pretty sure but yeah okay thank you so first of all he's born in russia before the rise of the Soviet Union. So he oh, actually okay. witnesses the Russian Revolution as a child, right? Jesus. Moves to China, learns to play guitar and sing from his older sister. Okay. Moves to Paris. In Paris, he performs in a cabaret, singing and playing guitar. He joins the circus, no joke, learns how to do the trapeze. Then gets to know Jean Cocteau and his friends, like, oh, Picasso, Salvador Dali, <laughs> Marcel Marceau, Jean Marais. Okay. Like, those yeah, are all yeah. his buddies in Paris. Uh, then he moves to Switzerland because he had developed an opium addiction to deal with his his back injury sure. from riding, from the trapeze. Uh, and, and he recovers Paris, from so... his addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're right. You know, when in Paris, um, yeah. he does recover from his opium addiction and, and basically, like, never touches drugs again. He goes back to China learns to act from his new stepmother uh, who actually trained with Stanislavski and Chekhov. Okay. No slouch. Uh, And then he finally moves to New York. Wow. And during World War II, he actually worked for the American government propaganda radio stations, which they would basically like pump radio signals into occupied France and the Soviet Union. And so like he knew French, he knew Russian. So he was the one who was saying these things. This is all before he has like a great grasp of English. Okay. So after he finally learns English, he keeps taking on some smaller roles as he's learning. And then he stars in the stage musical, The King and I, as well as its 1956 film adaptation. And, And this is sort of an iconic role for him, of course, Like, if you're familiar with the iconography of the show, probably one of the first things you think of is that bald guy. That's your printer. 
Yeah. Right. That bald and, guy who is apparently not Asian, which like I to be honest, <laughs> right. I don't I don't think I knew because he kind of has not that, like, vaguely. <laughs> yeah, he's like a vaguely ethnic look and he's best known for playing the king of Siam. So like, I guess I just always assumed that he was Asian. No, he's not Siamese. And, uh, you know, it's that sort of a classic Broadway slash Hollywood trick of being like, oh, you're not from here, right? You could play Siamese. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyway, he becomes so associated with this role that he shaved his head for that role and he shaved his head for the rest of his life, basically. And then after that, he kind of continues on in Hollywood. And some of the other sort of like significant roles he ends up playing are Ramses III, maybe, in The Ten Commandments. Also a sort of bald role played by a vaguely ethnic person, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, you're Egyptian, right? Yeah, totally. totally. Put on this bronzer. Um, and then, and then of course the Magnificent Seven, he is one of the seven and probably most notably, he wears the exact same outfit in that movie as he wears in this movie. Yeah. Which is a nice little touch. Yeah. So it's like, clearly he gets cast in this because I bet that they probably were looking around for someone of Yul Brynner's stature broadly, who was like a Western star who'd be willing to take this role and, you know, probably any of the Magnificent Seven probably could have been in this. But thank God they got Yul Brynner because I think it's by far the best performance in this movie and oh, yeah. is the thing that makes this better than just a mediocre sci-fi movie. Is yeah, I would agree. His, his performance and also, to be fair, the way that final act is directed is, is really what makes it stand out. Yeah, absolutely. Um well, let's talk a little bit about the sort of look and feel of this movie. And and again, we've been talking around it, but um, it's not very good, <laughs> Nate. Like, I, I, like, it's not. This movie is so interesting for me because I don't love it and I don't hate it. It's kind of middling. I think it's a really interesting premise. Not poorly executed, but certainly not executed to the level that I think it could be. And one of the things that I sort of just kept thinking as I was watching, I was like, God, this movie looks so flat. Like, it's not moody at all. There's no sense of drama going on. Yeah. Which I get the sense was maybe a stylistic choice. I don't necessarily agree with it, but. Right. <laughs> I have some background that might help explain this. So I think part of it is what you're saying that, you know, this is a quote from Crichton describing the style of this film he says the style i think is very straightforward very conventional and very traditional in many ways it's the way the film would have been shot sequence by sequence had the sequences appeared in a 1940s western or a 40s version of robin hood right Right. so it's like he's definitely trying to make something that looks like an old-fashioned movie i think that's part of it but also i think what's going on is that this movie was shot for 1.3 million dollars even in 1973 like not a lot of money no it was really not a lot of money like just to put it in real context their budget for set construction was seventy five thousand dollars. jeez wow so it's like they were working with like nothing the other factor at play is like you were saying michael crichton is a first-time director and he's working with a cinematographer who is very much like taking his requests at face value and right. not pushing back on things. And Crichton okay. in interviews is sort of like, it's so great to work with someone who just like, here's what I'm asking and then figures it out. Yeah. But the flip side of that is like, for example, Michael Crichton was like, I really want to do some shots where, you, you know, there's like a 360 degree pan. 
which okay. which you know on the face of it you're like okay sure fine but it means that your set has to be all the way around you right, right? and and th- therefore you also need to figure out how to light it in such a way right. that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's visible from all angles and so what's the answer to that question you light it from above <laughs> yep and you light it with soft light and so all of those scenes where they're like in the control room, that's what they look like. It's just lit right. very evenly and very flat because they're moving around in such a way that it kind of requires that. Now, to be fair, right. like, you know, directors like say, oh, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick, uh, <laughs> you know, have figured out how to do this. Right. Where it's like, well, then you, you like can light in through the windows yeah, and do yeah, things yeah. like that that give it that sort of dramatic flair while also allowing you to 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 play with that a little bit more. Like, you know, if you're talking about Full Metal Jacket or you're talking about Barry Lyndon, which like famously is you uses a lot of like natural light, right? Yeah. Like he's figured out how to do that. But it's but it's Stanley Kubrick, right? <laughs> I mean, so it's sort well, of like that's a, and that's the thing. That's sort of what I'm was getting at is like a film like this has the potential to be visually as visually interesting as it is conceptually interesting when you hear him sort of describe that he wanted it to look and feel like a, a 40s film it's this weird thing of like it's a dated film referencing an even more dated style of filmmaking <laughs> so when yeah. you're watching it 50 years later it's just like it kind of just has this especially like ultra dated look and feel which is maybe part of it and it's just unfortunate yeah. that his approach doesn't allow the film to have that visual flair outside of the few moments where it does because again it's not to say it's completely without it the 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 glowing eyes of the the robots and the robot vision that we've talked about like there are these little touches of visual flair and again yeah. it's just part of the expectations of what we expect from a, a film like this it's a sci-fi movie you think about you know, THX 1138, or you think about Star Wars, or you think about like aliens or alien, excuse me. And, and the, the sort of visual language that becomes established within the next decade following Mm -hmm. this film. And this just feels so far removed from that. Yeah. So his argument was that the premise was so weird that he wanted to use a more conventional film language to let the the premise shine and not be like, isn't this weird? Oh, look how crazy this is. Because that could just kind of get annoying and maybe undercut the premise. Right. Which, that argument makes sense to me. Like, a great example of this, and, you know, this is one of my favorite movies, is Being John Malkovich. Mm. Where it's like, that movie is absolutely batshit it's a it's an insane movie the premise is yeah. bizarre but it's shot like like a documentary right and like the lighting is really plain that you know it's not like dramatic and high contrast I, if i'm remembering correctly there's a fair amount of like shaky cam and stuff like that like that's a great example of how to do what he's describing or even like yeah. same writer eternal sunshine of the spotless mind very yes. inventive movie but then like when you're in the real world it looks like real life right yeah. To me, that's the way to do what he's arguing this movie does, which is yes. to play up the real worldness of it. But what this movie does is actually it plays on movie conventions. It's not mimicking documentaries. It's mimicking old movies. To me, it's the wrong conventions. 
to do yeah. what he's arguing. If this Absolutely. movie felt like a documentary and had the premise it had, it would be fucking wild. <laughs> like it would be incredible. Yeah, imagine the William Friedkin version of this movie. Like it would exactly. just be it, it could exactly. be terrifying. Um, yes. and in the end That's a per- a perfect analogy. Yes. If it, if Billy yeah. Friedkin made Westworld, I mean, damn. <laughs> like that would have been incredible. Really, really incredible. Yeah. Although it, w- it would have had a very long prologue set in, in like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that yeah, completely in the factory in China the, where yeah, the robots yeah, exactly, are created. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I, I do want to talk about one more aspect of the visual language of this. Yeah. Okay. Which is the editing, mm. which I, which I actually think is maybe one of the more interesting aspects of this movie. It's not doing anything flashy, but I think like one of the weird things mm-hmm. about this movie is that and it's it's somewhere between the editing and the script is that you keep going back and forth between the different worlds. And the yeah. only like really named characters are the two we talked about. But then you actually follow other patrons of the park in their adventures in the other worlds. But yes. like they don't have any character. They're not giving a name. They're not giving backstory, nothing, right? Yeah. So you're just, like, watching them kind of, like, you know, experience medieval world and then, like, things <laughs> go wrong. Or there's, like, another patron of Westworld who, like, becomes the sheriff and that kind of stuff. It's really weird. Yeah. It's really breaking the conventions of film in a lot of ways. So, I don't know. I was curious what you thought about that. No, it's true. I I, I always found it funny because I was like, the movie's called Westworld, and we're spending a lot of time <laughs> in this other non-Westworld that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Like, what is the purpose of this? And I, I, and like you say, unnamed characters, but it all is sort of building to this mm-hmm. inevitable sort of breaking point. And I did sort of like when in the medieval world and they have the fight and the robot stabs the guy. Like, literally yeah. just stabs him in the stomach. I was kind of like, whoa, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Like, I I understood that the robots are, you know, malfunctioning or fighting back, but I wasn't expecting this sort of, like, cold-blooded, sort of violent act to happen. So, and I also think the film is incredibly well-paced. Like, I, I really appreciate yeah. that it's a tight 90 minutes. I never found myself, like, overly bored. I do think the amount of slow motion in this movie is borderline Zack Snyder levels of slow motion. I just it feels very unmotivated and very showy and kind of in that horrible way of like, why are we doing this? But um, it's a lot like Full Metal Jacket, too. It's always like when someone's being shot, when someone's through a a window, like it's always that same move again again, and again. That sort of ties back to this idea of like, oh, I want to make it feel like a 40s Western because like obviously they do that and and use that sort Mm. of language. But despite that, I do think the film is is very well paced. And when I paused it at that sort of halfway mark and I'm like, is that like, where is this going? I was surprised (laughs) that I was like halfway through because I was like, oh, okay, we still haven't quite gotten to the premise, but I I assumed that that meant like we were only like 20 minutes in and then we're going to get to it. And then there's, but it was like, no, like the movie's almost over. And yeah. So I was sort of like surprised by that. So yeah, it is it is an interesting structural approach to telling this story. I think it helps them like raise the stakes a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Because if you just jumped to Ewell Brenner malfunctioning and then his friend gets shot, spoiler, James Brolin, it would be abrupt. But like by that point, you saw this nameless guy in medieval world get stabbed. So I think it's a way of building the tension yeah. of the story. Without tipping off our main characters yet that something's wrong. Yes, 
The other thing I really like from a stylistic standpoint or just like from a craft standpoint is the score. It's kind of got like a quasi tangerine dreamy, like it's electronic and it it's yeah. at first it's very sort of like unassuming and again plays up this sort of idea of what he's talking about of like old timey and, and feeling of the era they're sort of mimicking. But yeah. then it gets into this sort of like again once the chase kicks off, it gets into this really sort yeah, of electronic like, dr- stuff. Driving electronic sort of menacing score that I just was like, I'm digging this. This is really yeah. working for me. They parody it very well on The Simpsons in another parody, which we'll get to soon. But yeah, no, totally. I I, I love the score. I think the one piece that kind of drives me crazy is the bar fight scene. Uh, yes. <laughs> where they have, they're like, let's have a comedic score. And the score is just like, but yeah. it's basically yakety sax, right? Yeah. That scene in general doesn't work for me. Doesn't I think work. it's just like, yeah. it, it's kind of out of place and... Um, it's trying too hard to to add that sort of comedic element other than that though i i love the weird contrast between that sort of like yeah traditional western score and then the electronic stuff that sort of creeps in more and more throughout the movie like i think maybe one of the early times when you hear it is like you know they go to sleep and the park shuts down and then like all the trucks come into westworld and start Mm -hmm. picking up the corpses and bringing them over to robot repair like i love that that's actually probably one of the most cinematic best scenes in the movie i think is when that happens and i think that's maybe when you start hearing the electronic score and then as you get to the third act it like really really kicks in so there's actually it's funny you mentioned that there's another moment that really stuck out to me that um it's funny because so there when they when they shut the park down and yeah. our our heroes come out and they kind of don't they're like oh everything's very quiet like what's going on here and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be this real like tense moment of like eeriness and 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 like what is going on here <laughs> but because the film has such a low budget and there's basically been no extras throughout most of this movie and the park despite being <laughs> this massive theme park is pretty empty yeah. it doesn't quite have the like punch that it should because it's like <laughs> well yeah the it's been pretty empty this whole time like it's just it's one of those moments where it was like the, again it's like this is a really really interesting idea and it if it had been executed properly along the way would have been like yeah. really eerie if you had like all of a sudden gone from a bustling theme park like disneyland to a completely empty space and you're just these right. two patrons and where is everything like that would be terrifying but it just totally. it doesn't ever actually like pay off quite well enough because this movie doesn't have the budget that it needs to really do it. So, yeah, yeah, no, 100 percent. Let's talk about the special effects, because I really think that is where this movie shines for the most part. There's some there's some things that are better <laughs> no than pun, others. No but... pun intended. <laughs> Indeed. But I think that it does some really inventive stuff here that, again, was like so, so influential. So. Yeah, let's talk about those reflective eyes that you mentioned. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like Yul Brynner's character, the gunslinger as they call him, again, this is one of those things that was like written into the script by Crichton. He was like, I want him to have electronic eyes. His eyes need to look like he's a machine. And so they like experimented a bunch with like different techniques for doing this. And what they ended up settling on was silver-coated contact lenses which is pretty cool because in the movie it is hard to kind of figure out exactly what it is you're looking at but knowing that you can kind of see it it's like totally just that his his irises look too shiny is basically what it is but the interesting thing is before they landed on that solution 
the DP was like trying to figure out the answer to Crichton's question, basically, like, how do you do electronic eyes? And he was like, he wanted to use a two-way mirror and project a beam of light directly into Ewell Brenner's eyes on the same optical axis as the camera. But he was like, in the American Cinematographer, it doesn't work. I, I thought it would work. It doesn't work. You can't actually do that. Right. Does that or does it? sound familiar? Yeah. Oh, yes, because it was the thing that I, the whole time I was like, holy shit, Blade Runner stole this from West. Exactly. Like, but exactly. it does it without the sort of like trickery of using contact lenses. And it does sort of the natural thing that we witness in real life of how light can reflect usually in animals eyes but gives it that sort of otherworldly eerie presence because it's a little bit more realistic um mm-hmm. and is obviously a key plot element in blade runner but yeah a hundred percent i immediately like that was the first thing that came to mind i was like hey this is a cool effect hey they did that in blade runner blade runner definitely ripped this off but blade runner definitely did it better so yeah but see that's the thing is that like not only did blade runner you know basically do the same thing visually or story-wise but like the technique that they use that's, in Blade yeah, Runner that's, is is exactly what the DP tried to do for this and and was like it doesn't work I can't do it and they figured cool. it out for Blade Runner so like I thought that was super cool and it is a great way to just like subtly indicate that like this isn't a person there's something different yeah. going on so totally such a cool idea and again <laughs> like something from this movie that has such a long tail you know because everyone thinks of Blade Runner when they think of that technique. Well, the other thing that this movie does that has an incredibly long tail, and we've been referencing it multiple times, is the robot vision, which, like, again, it's a very primitive form of what we will see done to death in science fiction for the next five decades, be it in RoboCop, Terminator, you know, like, everything. Like, it's a predator. Like, it's just this is going to be done to death. And in a weird way, like, I think this is kind of maybe the best implementation of it in a weird way. Like, there's something about it that feels much more robotic and less, oh, I'm just going to do like a visual stylistic sort of representation of what it might be like. Like, this is the only instance where it actually does feel like maybe this is I'm seeing an actual image processing of a non-human entity versus like, Oh, I'm just going to put like a red filter and some computer text on screen. Like, yeah, I think like the thing that works so well about the computer vision here is that it has clear rules, you know, Mm. about like how it works. And particularly when his like eyes get damaged by the acid or whatever, at at first, like the computer vision is full color and he can see everything after that. it, It, it's only the red, Uh, color that's coming through right and so that's how our protagonist sort of tricks him because he can't differentiate between a human being and the fire right like uh, of one of the torches but that technique feels like oh the rules of how this work are really clear whereas like yeah if you look at the terminator or you look at predator right it's like all of these movies that steal this idea basically The rules aren't clear, right? The text that comes up is all sorts of things. And there's all sorts of symbols and bullshit in them. And it's fine to have a higher resolution, obviously, than the Westworld version of this where it's really blocky. But, like, even if you had high-quality video resolution in your robot vision, 
having a more limited set of tools that kind of illustrate how the robot is analyzing the situation would probably make it feel a little bit more like this, a little bit more like there are clear rules. We understand how the robot thinks about things. Ironically, I think The Simpsons does a pretty good job of this because they also parody this whole idea of robot vision several times. Uh, It's kind of a runner and they tend to kind of mix together all of these different movies, you know, into their parody. So like even in itchy and scratchy land, they do the kind of pixelated look like in Westworld, but it actually has text as well. It accidentally identifies Homer as scratchy or itchy or whatever (laughs) and says kill, right? Like the rules of how those robots work is very clear. Earlier in the episode, you see it identify another robot and be like itchy kill, I think that's the thing that's often missing with this trope that has come out of this movie. I kind of gave a bit of the background of this technology and like how this came to be, but it is, it is such a wild story that like, again, Crichton just wrote this in the script and was like, yeah, so the gunslinger has some kind of robot vision. And then he tasked (laughs) someone with figuring out what that means. And all he said is like, the image should be made by, you know, a machine. Right. And so basically this guy, John Whitney Jr., Uh, was tasked with figuring it out. He gets a credit on this movie that is automated image processing. (laughs) Um, Like, what a cool credit. And this actually ends up being the first computer-generated image on film. That's super cool. He had to go to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory to find the technology to create this image. And they were like, yeah, 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 totally, we could do that. Um, it'll just cost about $100,000 uh, for <laughs> for the 2.5 minutes of footage that they needed. Wow. And they were like, well, again, like we don't have the budget for that. So luckily, Whitney was able to find a private company that actually was working on a similar prototype, and they were able to do it for a lot quicker and cheaper. So he was able to kind of figure it out that way. They had to, like, write a program to even make images on a computer at the time. Because, right. again, yeah, yeah, yeah. technology didn't exist. <clears throat> then they had to, like, film the results of it, essentially. Right. Like, so, really interesting. But in this article from American Cinematographer, again, I keep referencing it, they did a whole issue about Westworld when it came out. Cool. Um, Whitney basically wrote about this process. As time goes on and the computer systems which do this work become faster and cheaper and smaller, it should be possible to think of a quote-unquote electronic optical printer with broad applications in feature films, commercials, in fact, any visual area. Wow. (laughs) I mean, again, it's just hard to place yourself in this moment in time where, like, now we just take this for granted. I mean, hell, we complain about you know, CGI goop all the time. Yeah, all the time. Um, and yet, you know, at this point in time, like this had never been done before. So that, right. I, I really think that's pretty incredible. Absolutely. That segues Sorry. nicely into the thing that I think is the best part of the film and is sort of yeah. where we see all this sort of robot vision, which is the final sort of like 20-ish minutes of the movie, which is the gunslinger is chasing after our hero, Peter Martin. So effectively he's reprogrammed he's upgraded he's got new audio visual capabilities and the next morning he confronts our two characters and shoots james brolin's character 
much to James Brolin's surprise, because he's been told earlier in the film that this is not a possibility, nothing could possibly go wrong. Uh, possibly go wrong. <laughs> um, and then basically, from that point on, it's just the gunslinger's relentless pursuit of Peter Martin through all of Delios, uh, from Westworld to Roman world to medieval world, until we get to the end of the film. And I do genuinely think that this is... It's it's really, really strong storytelling and filmmaking, but it's in yeah. that great way that our high school film teacher would have talked about it, the concept of the chase and how you can do mm. incredible storytelling with essentially no dialogue whatsoever. Because I think, I, I, right. I can't say for certain, but apart from the last five-ish minutes when he finds the woman who's been, or the robot, I should say, who's chained up and he sort of talks to her and gives her water and then she malfunctions, there's really not a ton if any dialogue it's just basically yeah the gunslinger relentlessly chasing this guy through the various sets and locales of the film it's really really good it's really powerful obviously you can't help but think of things like the terminator when you watch it though as someone who absolutely doesn't particularly like the first terminator movie i think this is far more effective and menacing wow and scary because yeah, I, I, and it's weird because, like, Arnold is a menacing presence, but he's not... His strength has never been his acting chops. I don't know. There's something about... And you sort of touched on it. Brenner's performance here that even though he's not saying anything and he's really just sort of, like, walking and firing his gun, you get this sense of he is unstoppable and will yeah. not rest until he gets his man. And... It's kind of terrifying. There are some really awesome details in his performance that sell it so well. Like, you know, for example, for a lot of the chase, you have our protagonist kind of running frantically around. And then you just cut back to Brenner and he's slowly walking forward at a steady yeah. pace. He's yeah. got his hands around his belt buckle and they just stay there like exactly yeah. still for a lot of that. And then, you know, the other thing is... There are a few shots, I believe, of him shooting, and he he never blinks. Mm. His eyes are always open, and of course, like, you know, wincing and blinking, it's like that's a natural human reaction when you're firing a gun or anything like that. Even I think if you're trained, you're probably going to, like, react and wince a little bit. There's, like, a couple other moments where his pose is too perfect. It is, like, cinematic. He looks like he's in a Western, but he's, like, not moving, you know? Like, just stuff like that that is subtle. But, again, he's just really killing this performance. There are a lot of details that not only make this a great performance, but also have been cribbed to death by his other movies, which I'll, I'll get into shortly. But I did want to touch on the Simpsons parody of this chase because I think it's a really interesting example of how parody works on the Simpsons. So there's a scene in the, the episode, The Boy Who Knew Too Much, which is from season five, another David Merkin season. And so basically Bart is cutting school and he's trying to like have his day out causing mischief and Skinner is on his tail. And the way Merkin describes it on the commentary is he's slowly transforming into the Yule Brenner robot from this movie, basically. Interesting. But the thing that's interesting about this is that, like, I've seen this sequence posted online frequently where people are like, how is this a parody of Westworld? 
because right. there's a, in particular they're sort of talking about the Westworld stuff in the section of this sequence where Skinner is coming towards Bart and Bart uh, crosses a river and cuts the bridge right and Skinner sort of like walks through the river and completely submerges and then comes out yeah. the other side right yeah and and it is like such a cinematic sequence but people are always like, but where is that in Westworld? I don't get that. Like they're saying it's from Westworld, but it's not in Westworld. Now having like watched it and like watched that sequence again in detail, I think I kind of, now I understand like what exactly they're parodying and how, and also the stuff that's like not a parody. So like when Skinner stands up after licking the, 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 the gum, you'll notice that he actually puts his hands around his belt buckle, just like Yul mm. Brynner does in all of these scenes. So there's like a little detail there. But then it's also like the overall vibe of that whole scene, right? Skinner's walking, Bart's running frantically. You know, of course, the landscape goes from, you know, your usual Springfield landscape to kind of this desert landscape. And most importantly, too, I think the score from our good friend Alf Clausen yep. really starts to sound like that sequence from Westworld. And so Definitely. it's more the look and feel of it, but it's not actually him walking across the river. That's just right. like a, you know, Jeffrey Lynch, Brad Bird original. Brad Bird in particular, I mean, he, he, he has such an incredible visual sense and his movies are filled with unique visual set pieces like that. That's not surprising to think that he might have just come up with that. Totally. I think it's interesting because The Simpsons is, it's actually filled with moments like this that feel like and look like and smell like and sound like they must be a parody of something but you can't actually figure out what the hell it's a parody of moments that break the reality of the show or feel out of sync with the usual style of the show. There are kind of these enigmatic parodies or references that like some of them may be a reference to something obscure that they just don't mention on the commentary. And some of them might just be some weird thing that like came from a writer's mm. brain and it just feels like it's a parody of a movie or it's a style parody or something. Are you a, are you a big weird Al fan? I, don't, I genuinely yeah. don't know your yeah, answer yeah. to this, but like the way I sort of think of it now is how Weird Al has sort of two kinds of parodies, right? He has mm -hmm. song parodies, which are like, you know, eat it. Like he, he's taken Michael Jackson's Beat It and he's going to make it all about food and it's all food references to the tune of this song. But then he does yeah. these things that are like style parodies. He'll do like a Prince parody. Yep. The melody is not a specific Prince song, but it's just in the style of a song that Prince would write. And I think that's sort of the thing that we are getting in this instance is that it may not be a direct shot for shot reference to a sequence from Westworld. But it's trying to crib the visual language, although we're arguing there isn't necessarily a ton of visual language there, but like <laughs> the, the elements of Westworld to sort of give that impression and give that sort of sense of the film or what that film is trying to achieve without being a direct like one for one reference to something that happens in the film. And totally. I think the thing that really is throwing everybody is that I would argue iconic moment where Skinner yeah. walks into the water the score stops and then he resurfaces and the score kicks up again. And it's just, totally. it's a brilliant cinematic moment that I guess people just sort of like, well, that has to be from something else. Right. There's no way, but you're right. It's just, no, it's like, yes, they commonly do parodies and they're parodying, you know, classic filmmakers, but they are filmmakers in and of themselves and they are capable of doing really, really 
quality filmmaking on their own. I mean, we, we've talked about this on various episodes before of like how sometimes these Simpson episodes can be like gorgeous cinematography and gorgeous sound design. And like there's an artistry there that I think we too often don't give the show credit for. And I think this scene in particular that we're describing is a perfect example of, yes, while it's got its origins and its basis from Terminator and Westworld, it's still the Simpsons' own take on it. And that Mm -hmm. take is so powerful that everyone just assumes, well, this has to be from something else. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It feels so creative and unique that people think it must be from something else, but they're just creative and unique uh, (laughs) as as animators as well as the writers, right? That's, I think, the key thing. So one other thing I wanted to talk about with this chase scene is, you know, you've mentioned the Terminator. Did you know that there's actually a direct connection to the Terminator? Um, To Westworld? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't uh, know that. So James Cameron actually had Arnold Schwarzenegger model his performance off of Yul Brynner. Well, there you go. So there you go. But even more interesting than that, because like that kind of makes sense. It's like, okay, well, another unstoppable robot. Yeah, sure. Of course. Right. What what else would you think of? That's the classic performance. Did you know that Michael Myers in Halloween is modeled after mm. Yul Brynner? Interesting. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yes, that makes that almost makes more sense to me. John Carpenter says he was directly inspired by this. Interesting. That makes a lot more sense to me, especially if you look at how those two characters are portrayed and sort of like the mm-hmm. the sort of lack of dialogue from Michael Myers. Yeah, that's but, super but, interesting. But again, like think about this for a second, right? Halloween is a movie that launched a million slasher movies. Yeah. And it's inspired by this movie. So it's like this weird, obscure, somewhat obscure <laughs> 1970s sci-fi movie is like indirectly partially the progenitor of all these slasher movies as well as all these sci-fi movies it's crazy to me that like as much as this movie is you know it's it's not amazing it is kind of this uh rosetta stone for all of these other influences that uh, have echoed across the years yeah it's fascinating i did want to ask you about the very last moments of this film because you know at the end of this chase, you mentioned he, like, finds this woman in the medieval dungeon yep. and frees her and tries to give her some water. And then it turns out she's a robot, so he fries her, basically, yep. <laughs> which was a pretty interesting moment. At this point, he's already, like, uh, set Yule Brenner on fire, right? And so he he thinks he's yeah, done and, with him. And in fact, I do want to draw attention to that moment where he sets him on fire because this is, a, you know, that peak, we're going to actually light a dude on fire era of filmmaking. <laughs> and it looks yeah. at like it's insane that we used to do that. We still kind of do that, but mostly everything is like CGI now and like the CGI looks great and we don't have to endanger actors or stuntmen and that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But like... There is something to be said for the viscerality of um, a man clearly covered in an insane amount of gasoline that's been lit on fire. Because it is not a modest fire on it. Like, he is... Oh, no, it's huge. It's like the human torch. Like, it is wild how on fire he is. So, uh, it's an yeah. incredible visual moment. But, yeah, so he's torched Yul Brenner, and you assume, okay, well, the robot is gone. We don't have to worry about him anymore. But, of course... Yeah. I've seen enough movies to know, no, 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 never think that. They always come back for one more scare, as they say in Scream. Well, well, but again, like, was there a movie before this that pulled that same sort of, like, 
I actually yeah, don't. Have I don't know. For that. I don't there know. may there very very well might have been. There's a long movie history before this, but like, you know, again, this is pre other slasher movies. Basically, Black Christmas comes out the year after this, right? right. Yeah. So it's like there aren't a lot of precedents for this kind of stuff. So I, I'd be curious, but like, yeah, there's there's one final scare in this movie, which I think is pretty damn good, where the Yule Brynner robot comes back, but it has no face and it's just pitch black burned. Yeah. And it, and it just like is on the stairs and he turns around and he sees it and you get a real close up of this robot. And it's a scary image. Like, it, yeah. I think I think it's really good. It's genuinely disturbing it doesn't necessarily yeah. even feel dangerous it just feels wrong yeah it's very unsettling it. and and then the robot falls off the stairs and then you get a very clear look of this like faceless machine thing and it's again it is yeah. very it's a very unsettling image but also a very cool image i i think it's a great little button the only problem was like i just saw it coming a mile away i think it's just a filmmaking thing of like in the right hands that moment could have been a real like shock but the way mm-hmm. it was sort of drawn out and I was like, dude, like you're you're acting like everything's fine. Like there's no way everything's fine. Like yeah. you got your little mini scare with the the robot lady. Like you really think Yul Brenner's gone for good? And then I was surprised at how far gone they revealed him to be. Like I thought he was going to come back and be totally fine. Um, yeah. So that, there was a bit of a, a twist there in that he just basically reaches his arm out and then falls. And who knows, maybe in 1973, people didn't see that coming. But after 50 years of twist endings that are not dissimilar, it was just like, oh, I, I know where this is going. But yeah, I, again, I do love that then that's just how the movie ends. Like, it's a very nice, clean, abrupt. There's no aftermath. There's no, like, cleanup. There's no trying to explain this. You know, at the end of Psycho, a movie which I love, where they have to then explain why Norman Bates went insane and murdered all these people and it's like right, this, right. this 15 minutes of a psychiatrist being like well actually like there's nothing like that here it's just no it just it ends on this nice clean little scare and that's i i do yeah, he like sits down on the stairs and looks tired basically yeah yeah and uh and then this actually leads nicely into our next segment the parts that seem like simpsons jokes but aren't but you get this kind of echoey voiceover. Right. Over yes, I forgot about sitting, that. Yeah. Where it just repeats the same thing over and over again. That's something like, yeah. you know, Westworld where nothing can possibly go wrong. Possibly <laughs> yeah. go wrong. Possibly go wrong. Which actually feels very much like a Simpsons joke to me because they've done that a million times. Like Lisa needs braces. Yeah, you know? exactly. That definitely made me think of the Simpsons, that ending, uh, even though it's pretty effective, but it was also a little funny. <laughs> Was there anything for you that stood out like that? You also mentioned it, uh, the bar fight. Like, it definitely has this sort of, like, zany, slapsticky, Simpsons-esque. Even the way it's structured of, like, you know, people are swigging booze and then throwing punches. It just, I think it's the weakest section of the movie. I kind of understand its purpose, but it just feels out Mm -hmm. of place. They're trying to do, like, a foreground, background sort of thing. Yeah. Where they're like playing the cards in the foreground and then there's the fight in the background. It kind of should be funny, but they're just not pulling it off. It's the type of thing that the Simpsons would do and pull off properly. Where totally, like exactly. you have that sort of foreground background contrast and that kind of thing. Okay, so Nate, I, you know, we've sort of discussed that this movie like obviously has had a surprising amount of influence but was it successful upon release like how, what what was the box office performance for this this is like before that era where like box office numbers are really clear cut yeah 
So I found different sources about how much it actually made, but definitely it made $2 million in its opening weekend. So right there, it, it made back its budget. And the number that keeps coming up in a few different places is about $10 million in its initial run. So it's pretty good. It's not like the best performing uh, movie of the year or anything, but like it way more than made back its budget, right? That's like, right. I, I don't know, but almost 10 times its budget, maybe not quite that, but you know, it, it did quite well in terms of that. It also, of course, didn't get any nominations for the Academy Awards. Not that surprising. <laughs> not not unsurprisingly, yeah. I yeah, mean, it is also the year time. of the, the Exorcist and Day of the Dolphin. So, you know, it had to, it had <laughs> st- stiff had a competition. Lot of competition. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The only sort of, uh, you know, awards and nominations that it got were mostly for like genre film and genre fiction awards. Right. Probably because of the Michael Crichton connection would be my thought. Right. It's just that like people are already aware of who he is in that world. So yeah, didn't really get a lot of accolades in that way. But I would say that like most of the reviews at the time seemed to be quite positive for the most part. Okay. Um, Variety said, Westworld is an excellent film which combines solid entertainment, chilling topicality, and superbly intelligent serio-comic story values. Michael Crichton's original script is is as superior as his direction. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Might be overselling it a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that I agree, but fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the serio-comic aspect as well is like, eh, I don't know if the comedy totally lands, you know, could have been left out or done differently. Later movies of his do a much better job of actually bringing the comedy into these, these topics. One review that was like a little bit more middling was from uh, Vincent Canby at the New York Times. Always reliable, it seems like, for a middling review. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He says, uh, Crichton, the director, seems to have had more fun with the film than Crichton, the writer, whose screenplay can offer us no better explanation for the sudden bloody robot rebellion than an epidemic of central mechanical psychosis. This basic facetiousness is partly obscured by the vivid and sometimes amusing dimension of the film's anecdotes, which are mostly about the peril of the guests when make-believe gives way to reality. Hmm. Interesting. So it's interesting to see the script being pegged as being weak in this movie when I feel like we're for the most part being like actually the script's probably the strong part and the rest is yeah. maybe uh, yeah. where the, it sort of falls short but it just does seem to have this staying power with people like that's the thing that strikes me is just like the simpsons writers and all of these other filmmakers especially your john carpenters or your james cameron's right who are watching this movie and taking inspiration from it like that says a lot to me and then of course i mean the thing that you have to say about this movie is that it also had a sequel movie. It had a sequel TV series in the 80s. Oh, I didn't <laughs> called, know about that. Called Beyond Westworld. Interesting. Okay. In the early 2000s, Arnold Schwarzenegger was actually signed on to produce and star in a remake of this movie. <laughs> of course he was. Of course he was, which again, like, makes sense because it's kind of like coming full circle. Yeah. He played the Terminator. Terminator's based on, Bryn, you know. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. so he actually ended up dropping out of the project because he was elected the governor of California. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank goodness. Right. And then, well, well, I mean, maybe not for California, but, you know. Well, yeah. And then you have, uh, you know, the most recent remake. So, like, it, it has had this aftermath. It's, it's almost a media franchise 
Uh, I guess yeah. it is technically at this point. Clearly, the yeah. premise has legs, you know. And yes, I, did you watch the the HBO series at all? So I watched the first season and part of the second season, okay. and then I think I stopped. I really enjoyed the first season, but then I didn't really love where it was going. I think was sort of where I landed with it. Right. That's kind of what the general consensus of people I know who watched it sort of said. I watched part of the first season and uh i don't think i even finished it it wasn't really my cup of tea the crazy thing is that the show is show run by jonathan nolan christopher nolan's brother yeah. who wrote a bunch of my favorite movies so like in theory i should like this thing it just didn't do anything it's... for me but it, it's and the premise is a little too different for me like i don't right. know i i think it falls into the trap we were talking about this i can't remember in what episode but it falls in the trap of a lot of these remakes and reboots and all this stuff of where they're like, well, we have to explain why yeah, this yeah, is it's the way the, it is. Who yeah, it's these the Prometheus problem. Yeah. yeah, the Prometheus problem, among other examples. I mean, I think Prometheus is a more interesting example of this in some ways. But, like, it, it happens in all sorts of little ways in movies where mm-hmm. you're just, like, fleshing out background characters that, like, you're like, why? You don't need to do that, right? I don't and... need to know why Willy Wonka became a chocolatier. I think that's not <laughs> that's not of interest to me. Hey, supposedly uh, that movie is very I, good. Yes, I've heard nothing it, but, but good things about that movie. But still, I, but it yes. doesn't mean that it needs to exist. Point taken. Um, Point taken. But yes. And, yeah. And so, like, it does kind of fall into that a little bit where it's like, you, you know, like you said, one of the strengths of this movie is that it sort of sketches out the rest of the world, mm-hmm. but it doesn't explain mm-hmm. every detail. It doesn't give every character a, a huge backstory and, yeah. you know, a guilt-ridden past that ties into the <laughs> present story and all this sort of stuff. These are just some guys who, like, are on vacation <laughs> and yeah. survive a, a horrible massacre, right? Or one of them does. And the robots just go haywire because we don't understand how they work. Yeah. There's no sort of, like, greater philosophical thing in this movie and even like, you know, the original Jurassic Park has a little bit more, but just enough, just yeah. enough to kind of make you think, but like really not overburden it. And I do feel like the Westworld show, the most recent one, kind of got really into all of the sort of philosophical stuff and was really dwelling on all of it and also was withholding so much information from you mm. that also got a little grating after a while. So yeah. anyway, I, again, I watched the whole first season. I, I, I generally enjoyed it, but it's a very different philosophy of storytelling than this movie. Totally. So, Adam, do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses for you on this one? It feels like it's a horse race. Yeah, I mean, going into this record, I was really not sure where what I was going to even say because I was like, well, I don't love this movie, but I also don't hate this movie. And I think discussing it now, I'm more warm to it than I think I initially thought I was. I think there's some really interesting ideas here. Mm-hmm. I think the premise is really interesting. I think it's let down by the fact that I don't think Crichton's filmmaking chops are capable of doing this. And and there is a part of me that wonders, like, oh, man, if this movie had been made by a different filmmaker or even made, like, 20 years later by a different filmmaker. Yeah. Like, I keep being like, imagine, like, a David Fincher version of this movie. Like, like a real visualist filmmaker who can take, sure. like, these sort of heavy premises and, like, or, like, even, like, Ridley Scott or, like, just... Mm-hmm. For me, I like the Friedkin. Fr- I think Friedkin would be. Fr- I mean, yeah, I, I think a Friedkin version of this would be really super interesting. Like for of that era, like if you kept it in the same yeah, like, yeah. filmmakers of the era. Uh, premise wise, 
it's there. It's just where it falls apart for me is it's just like visually and stylistically it's lacking. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I think, like you said, it's interesting to watch because you can sort of see the influence it has had over the course of the subsequent five decades. And in a weird way, it reminds me of like Yodorowsky's Dune that never got made. Yeah. And how like that ended up influencing Alien and Star Wars and like all these other movies take ideas from that and do it better. And I think like this is one of those movies where it's like people obviously saw it and were intrigued and were like, oh, how can I rework that into a more interesting or a more different idea? So I think it is worth seeing from that standpoint alone. And like, again, it's only 90-ish minutes. So it's not like it's a huge time commitment. It was never a slog like, you know, Planet of the Apes was for me. There's there's something here. And while Mm. I maybe wish it were better... There's enough there for me to say that, yes, I think the strengths outweigh the weaknesses and I and I would recommend it. And I think it's also just fascinating from a standpoint of like it was so ahead of its time in that it was one of these science fiction things that had something to say. And maybe it didn't go quite into the ethics and morality like he eventually would in his other work. But this is very much a kind of film that we make nowadays, maybe less so today, but like 10 years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, in the 90s and 2000s, this was like yeah. the thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's just sort of this interesting artifact from that era. But I think it holds up a lot better than its other contemporary. Like you talk about all those sci-fi movies from around the same era. And I don't know that yeah. they hold up as well as this does. So They're very different. Yeah, like Silent Running is like so slow. I mean, it's so an incredible. I love it but it is so slow. (laughs) Yeah. But even like Logan's run, like that's a perfect example. Like that is a kind of a schlocky, cheesy, it's cheesy (laughs) sci-fi. I love it too, but it's cheesy. Yeah. But this is like, I wouldn't describe this movie as cheesy. Like it's, it's no, me neither. It's cheap maybe, but it's effective. So Mm -hmm. I got to give it credit for that. How about you? I mean, you had seen it before. Like, did it, did it hold up for you? Would you say the strengths outweigh the weaknesses? Yeah, I mean, I I think you nailed it. If you're interested in film history, sci-fi or horror or slashers or like any of the sort of genre world in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. I think this movie is a really interesting watch because it does have such a wide influence and you'll recognize Halloween in it, all of that. If you know that going in, you're going to be like, wow, holy crap, this existed like so many years before that. And on top of that, it's not like doing your homework. It's a fast watch. It's enter. It's pretty entertaining. Like it's not incredible. It's not life changing watch, but it's. I think it's so historically interesting and such an easy watch that like you should do it. You should check it out because it's just fascinating. Yeah, the whole premise of our show is like I saw this movie and I'm like, oh, that's where that Simpsons reference comes from. And for me, this movie is less. Oh, that's where that Simpsons reference comes from. And it's more like, oh, that's where this thing from Blade Runner or this thing from Terminator or this like it's. There's so many elements from it that end up showing up in all sorts of things that yeah. it's kind of the perfect fit for our show. So Totally. Um, so, Adam, what about extra credit? Are there other movies that you might recommend that have a similar feel or a connection to, to this movie? I mean, to be honest, I, I struggled with this because, like, I'm not a big mm. sci-fi kind of guy. So beyond the sort of, like, all these films that we've touched on that were inspired by it, be it you know, Terminator, although I don't particularly like the first Terminator movie. So again, I mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But like Blade Runner obviously is a classic. And if you haven't seen Blade Runner, that, you know, 
go and see that. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not. I don't have a ton of love for that movie because it's just not my cup of tea. Though I really what about I Halloween. Well, that's yeah. Like Halloween is kind of interesting. You touched on Black Christmas, which I actually rewatched mm-hmm. this holiday season, which is I, I think it's such an underrated and like it's a bizarre movie and Canadian. So like Canadian, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So I I have to love it. I think by Canadian <laughs> law. But honestly, like the thing that I would suggest people see is like check out the Last of Sheila. See this yeah. other Richard Benjamin movie. He's got a great yeah, mustache. If you want more stick on and... mustaches, then <laughs> yeah. you know, that's your game. <laughs> yeah, it's a good movie. It's it nothing is. like this, but it's I, I do really enjoy it. So that would yeah. be my suggestion. What about you? You you I think will have much better suggestions than I do. <laughs> so I, I I had the opposite problem of like there were so many movies that came to mind for me. Because this is actually probably one of my favorite subgenres of science fiction, even, mm. which is like, you know sci-fi corporations in a mundane world right (laughs) like i and i've already mentioned like some of the movies that like sort of fit into that genre like even being john malkovich is a great example of that where it's like it's the world we all live in except there's this corporation that has a secret hole into the brain of john malkovich right (laughs) like you know it's stuff like that that i i really like or or eternal sunshine of the spotless mind right like charlie kaufman writes a lot of stuff like that but one of the movies we haven't talked about yet that I think is a great example of this subgenre is Total Recall. Mm. Have you have you ever seen Total Recall? I saw Total Recall much too young and of <laughs> course remembered the one thing that every under right. 10 year old boy remembers for total recall and that sure. was i i remembered that and then like him holding the head and then exploding so right. la- i think it was last year i went back and finally revisited it along with a number of other verhoven movies it is a wild movie but i it is yeah. very good it is very 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 good uh and I, it's one I of the really one of the it. verhoven movies i think actually holds up some of the like I know, I think it's you who I love Verhoeven. Starship. You love Starship Troopers, Starship, right? Starship Troopers is hilarious. Yeah, I I hated Starship Troopers, but really enjoyed Total Recall. So I, I think I think the thing about Starship Troopers, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's 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 like name dropped on The Simpsons in a title, I think, but it's not really ever parody. Yeah. So we don't even, we're not going to get to talk about it on the podcast, really. I think the thing about it is that it's like once you get the joke of what it's doing. For some people, they're probably like, okay, I get it. I could turn this off now. That's me. It's like, to be honest, I don't think I finished the movie because I was just like, yeah, "Yeah, I I, I get it. Like, it's, I'm good. Like, I I love it. I think it's hilarious. And uh, it's a pretty visually interesting movie. I forgot, to be honest, that Total Recall was also Verhoeven. Total Recall, of course, like the other connection point is that the whole plot is based around this technology that you can use to immersively escape from your everyday life, right? Yep. So he's going to have a vacation on Mars where he's a secret agent. And then the question is, like, is it real or is it not? And at the end, it's kind of like, I have no idea. And does it matter? <laughs> so anyway, I, I love those movies and would highly, highly recommend them as well as this movie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. But be sure to tune in next time where we'll be covering one of my all time favorite movies. And I am very, very excited to have to revisit this one. It's the opposite of homework for me but we will be talking about this is spinal tap with special guest marco jurgic so you definitely want to come back for that because we are definitely turning things up to 11 and you'll get to hear me do so many bad spinal tap impressions throughout the show um 
It's going to be a blast. But until then, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. And until next time, Nate, we'll see you around the Plex. We'll see you around the Plex. Oh, and Nate is frozen, and he's frozen in the most adorable pose, so I can't actually hear if he is saying anything right now. Um, <clears throat> so I'm just going to send him a little a little text message. Uh, oh, he lost power. Okay. Um, that'll, that'll definitely do it. So now I'm just going to riff while we wait for Nate to come back. Hopefully he comes back. And da-da-da-da. I'm going to eat goldfish. Nate's going to have to listen to me chew goldfish on Mike when he uh, edits this episode a little bit. <laughs> la, la, la. La, la, la. Yeah, Last of Sheila. Great movie. Highly, rec- highly recommend that one. If you like murder mysteries. Which, who doesn't love a good a good murder mystery. I know I do. Now I'm going to have a little chocolate. Because it's New Year's and I got, I got chocolate cooking around. So. La la la. Mmm. Connecting, connecting. All right. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? You back. I can hear yeah. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So we were just dunking on Richard Benjamin, James Brolin. <laughs> Richard <Bowen>. Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs>